Happy Halloween, everyone. A full moon on Halloween and Halloween is on a Saturday. I hope you're all able to celebrate today in whichever way you can. This episode is about a really cool place in Alberta, the Bellevue Mine. If you listen to my Crow's Nest Pass episode, you'll know that this area is very active and the Bellevue Mine is within Crow's Nest Pass. This place is steeped in so much history. Now there's a reason that I didn't include this in the Crow's Nest Pass episode. Much like Cabinet of Curiosities, there are some places that I know are just extra special and just need to wait for Halloween. So I spoke with three of their interpreters and you'll hear their stories. The next part of this episode will be my interview with author Joanne Christensen. She has written numerous books about the paranormal and I know you will all enjoy listening to her. She's so fascinating. I feel like as people who love the weird, macabre, and creepy, we instantly connect with others that love this subject matter too. Don't forget that you also have a chance to win a signed copy of her book, Ghost Stories of Saskatchewan 3. It's so good! So you will have until 8pm Mountain Standard Time tonight to enter. This will be your last chance and the draw will be at 9pm. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. As I said, the first location that we'll be talking about is the Bellevue Mine. Bellevue was established in 1905, on the land that lay flat above the Bellevue Mine. As I mentioned in the past episode about Crow's Nest Pass, which included the town of Frank, location of the infamous Frank Slide, and the Hillcrest Mine, Bellevue was like many other towns, built out of necessity and populated by people either working or close to someone working in the mines. The mine began producing right at the end of 1903, and over the next 58 years would have 13 million tons of coal extracted from it. Now, tragedy struck on December 9th, 1910, when out of 42 men in the mine, 31 lost their lives in a methane gas explosion that was supposedly triggered by a spark caused by a falling rock. Now, remember what I said about everyone in these towns. They were all connected to the mines. The men who went down there were cared for by the entire town. Mining was dangerous work, and when tragedy struck, the entire town bled. So I have some articles from this time that I'll post on the blog for you to see. In one article by the Edmonton Capitol on December 10th, 1910, there was a huge headline that reads, Heroes made when Bellevue Mine gave up the dead and the living. The loss of lives could have been much greater if the explosion had happened earlier that day, but also if it hadn't been for the heroic actions of some of the men who rushed in and managed to save some of the miners. One such hero was a man named Fred Alderson, who was labeled in this article as a special party brought in from Hosmer, B.C. with British Columbia oxygen helmets. He led five men out of the mine before sadly succumbing himself. Fred was actually leading out a victim when he saw another man fall to the ground. It was at this moment that he didn't hesitate to put his own oxygen helmet on the man, thinking he could stand the poisonous fumes for the last stretch to freedom. However, he was overcome and fell within the mine. 
Some of the other miners could see him, but they had just barely made it out themselves, and they knew that they didn't have the strength to go get him. As soon as they were able, they sent people in to get Fred, but sadly, he was gone. The paper also said that even more tragic is that the man Fred gave his helmet to was found dead with the helmet still on. Unlike Fred, this man didn't know how to work the helmet, so it was not effective at all. The article goes on to say that a small note was left by an anonymous writer with the quote, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. This was tucked under Fred as he lay in his casket. This reflected the feelings of the survivors and the town about this man that lost his life to save their own. Like I said, I will link these articles if you would like to read more about this event. Quite a few of the men that passed away died in very tragic deaths in this mine. I think the stone tape theory has to be at play here, and though it seems like there may be some intelligent spirits that remain, there also appear to be recordings of the past that linger as well. You can tour Bellevue Mine, not right now as they're closed for the season, but they do offer guided tours into the mine to the public. They did a lot of work this year to keep everyone safe with the measures that are required during the pandemic. Things such as smaller groups and by appointment only. So be sure to keep tabs on their website so you can take a tour that will surely be a unique experience. So I spoke with three of the mine's interpreters. Shannon, who is the head interpreter, she has been with the mine for four years. She came in as a skeptic, having been born and raised in the Crow's Nest Pass. The paranormal and history steeped in this area has been a part of her life always. She described always being able to explain things away, but when she started working at the Bellevue Mine, she says that her opinion changed 200%. The next interpreter we will hear from is Kaylee, who's been an interpreter for five years. She's always been sensitive to things and has always believed that there are spirits and energy around us. Working for the Bellevue Mine has really only solidified her belief and experiences. And finally, we talk with Cole, who is the newest interpreter. He just started this summer, and he's actually Shannon's brother and seemed to share her initial skepticism. But he does admit that he's been experiencing things already this season that are changing his mind. So let's jump right in and listen to some of their stories. I've been doing tours. For a long time now, and I've noticed a few things underground that have really been a little out of the ordinary that just don't seem to make sense. I suppose the biggest one for me was when on each tour we do a lights out section at the very end, and I was taking in a group with lots of younger children, and I always ask that the parents hold on to the kids so that they're not running around in the dark. When the lights all went off, um, I had something run into my leg. It felt like a big push. I thought a small child had just run right into me. And so I clicked my light on right away, thinking a small child was running around in the dark. And when I clicked the light back on, everyone was still standing exactly where they were when I clicked the lights off, and nobody had moved. But I had been physically pushed back from my leg. And so there was no way to explain it. No one had been moving around, but when I got out of the mine, I talked it over with my coworkers, like, has anyone had this before? What do you think it was? And our best guess is that it was a horse that had actually tried to nuzzle my pocket 
because I often kept snacks in there. (laughs) And it did feel like a large force that had really gone into my hip. That's probably the biggest one for me because it was actual contact where I felt something. Um, One morning when I was checking the mine phones, um, as we do every morning to make sure they work, I was heading out of the mine and we do have a permanent light in one area so that people can see better. And I was heading towards that, heading out of the mine, and I saw a body and I automatically thought a tourist had wandered into the mine when they weren't supposed to be. So Mm -hmm. I was walking towards them and all of a sudden this person ran into a coal seam and I lost them. Mm -hmm. And so I thought again, I was like, oh my goodness, we have people down here. So I came out of the building or I came out of the mine, sorry, and I asked the staff, is like, has anyone been down here? Like, there's people in the mine, they shouldn't be in there. And no guests or any tourists had actually come down to the site yet. So I don't know what that was that I saw or who I saw there, but it, it was a person that just ran into a coal seam. Um, I took in a smaller group one day and Again, with those phones, um, somebody apparently called into the building. They paged the phones from underground into our office here, and nobody was on the other line in the mine. Mm. When I came out of the tour, I was asked, did anyone from your group play with the phones? And I said, no, there was only five of us. I'm pretty sure I kept track of all of them, (laughs) but we, we never played with the phones. Next, we will hear from Cole. Now, remember, at the time I spoke with him, he'd only been there a month. And he actually told me about something he experienced that very day. So I haven't had quite the experiences a lot of our other interpreters had, just because I am still very new here. But I still have noticed a couple little weird or interesting things that happen on things like my tours or just around the place. So even just today, there was a time when I was in the building alone for about half an hour or 45 minutes. And I was just kind of sitting in our office, just kind of hanging out, doing my business. And again, I was the only one in the building. We have cameras. I can look around. I can see all the parts of the building everywhere. And constantly, I was just hearing footsteps. I was hearing people walk around. And it was confusing. So I would look up. I would check the cameras. I would walk. I would get up. I'd walk around. I would walk around the building, all this. There was nothing. So I'd come back, I'd sit back down, be another five minutes, and I'd hear it again. Just over and over and over again. So yeah, I'd say that was pretty much my biggest thing that's happened here. Speaking on Cole's little, like, footsteps, when I'm in the building alone, and I look up at the cameras when I hear footsteps, it actually triggers our motion sensor, and it tells us that someone is in that building being active They did tell me that the building is not directly attached to the mine. It's a short distance away from the entrance. So I wonder what's visiting them up there. Now let's hear from Kaylee. I'm probably the most sensitive one on staff to everything that goes on underground. I probably have the most stories. So just recently, actually about two days ago, when we were doing 
my tours, I have everybody stand in a circle. That way I know exactly where everybody is standing. And we do spread out based on, like, your family group. So we can still kind of social distance with everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple to my right who stood in this corner by themselves. And when we did lights out, she had felt three taps on her left shoulder. And the whole time when we turned her lights on, she was going to her husband, why'd you poke me? Why'd you poke me? And he was very adamant that, you know, he did not poke her. Mm-hmm. Now, I was standing to her left-hand side, and she turned to me, and she's, you didn't, you didn't accidentally poke me, did you? And I was, no, I didn't. I was still two feet away. So she had felt that. But a couple of my bigger ones, I was once physically shoved over. So when I do the tours, we have one area where you can add a coal car and you can talk about the coal car. And on the edges of them, they have little ledges. And in big groups, I like to stand on top. That way everybody can see me and hear me. So I was once just in the middle of my explanation, just standing on there, I felt two large hands right on the back of my shoulder and just physically push me off of the coal car. There's nobody behind me. Everybody stands in front of me. There was nothing there. And then that same tour, as soon as we shut off the light, right in my ear, I heard whispering. I kept hearing the word hello. There was that one. And you still work here? (laughs) I I know. (laughs) And then my one biggest one I'll never forget. It kind of creeped me out. It was after my, it was probably like my third year I worked here. It was a private tour that I did right at the end of the day with a small child and his dad. Um, He was about like three years old. Now, usually you'll find in the mine, all of the kids are super sensitive because they haven't, you know, really discussed or had their own thoughts of what they feel, you know, happens after death and whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. They're usually the most sensitive. But anyways, we started the tour off. We walked in the mine. And as soon as we get inside, this kid is just laughing and giggling and talking. And he's just having a good time. And I'm not too worried about anything because, you know, he's three years old. He's not doing anything harmful to anybody or the mind. So I'm perfectly happy. And I'm just chatting with his parents. We keep going throughout the mind. And in this one section, we do have a tunnel where you can see up. And he just kind of looks up there. And he's like, who's that man up there? And I was, what man? He's like, that one. Who's that man? And lo and behold, there was no man. Keep going through the tour. One of our next stops, he picks up a rock. And he just kind of throws it down the tunnel. It only goes about two feet in front of him. Two lights out. He's giggling, laughing. He's just having the time of his life. We turn around to come out, and as soon as we get out of the mine, I go to lock the gate. He runs back into just this little beginning part, and he says, goodbye, Fred, and runs back out. And I look to the the kid, and I'm like, who's Fred? And he goes, the man in the mine. He's Fred. And nowhere in this tour did I even mention the name Fred. There was no Fred in the building where he could have seen it and maybe read it or anything like that. But a couple of weeks ago, 
When I turn back on the light, I take my light and point it at my chest. That way I'm not blinding anybody with the light shining in their eyes after being in pitch black. Mm-hmm. When I turned on this light, this one distinct time, it's never happened to me before and it hasn't happened since, I saw a face directly standing over somebody's shoulder, just off to them in the back. And it was so distinct that I could draw you a picture of it. I will see so many just shadows and just like picking, like pickaxes on metal, pickaxes on rock. Mm-hmm. It's a very distinctive king sound. And you'll hear it when it's complete silence. So I'm, I'm going to butt in. This is Shannon speaking. Yep. When Kaylee was taking in a private ghost um, tour, uh, I took in a tour ahead of her. And when we were switching out and I was passing her, the ghost group that was taking in all their gadgets, they had a voice box um, contraption, and the voice box actually said my name. And very distinctly. And that was something really, really shocking to me. So those stories are wild. A lot of experiences here, and I'm sure little things that they just get used to and maybe don't even notice anymore. They did say that guests will hear things as well. Kaylee admitted that she had been hearing a lot of whispering lately and heavy breathing as if through an apparatus. Guests will often see shadows in the shape of a person or something passing quickly by in their peripheral view. They also talked about something we touched on with Hillcrest, and that is that it was often seen as bad luck for a woman to be in the mine that it was unsafe for a woman to be down there. So they believe that more tends to happen to women when they're in the mine. Though they both feel that it's not in a malevolent, but more in a protective way. Now at night, supposedly the energy is different. Shannon said that given the chance, she would not go there at night. That it is a time that is clear they do not want them down there. And this was a dangerous time of day to be in the mine as it was. And these men are still protective to this day. Now, back when I spoke with Monica and Joey for the Crow's Nest Pass episode, right at the end of 2019, they had sent me a printout of what they use for a ghost bus tour around different locations around there. So I'm just going to pop in a couple of stories that they included about Bellevue. Back when the mine was working, there were many stories of people either seeing a woman, child, or horse in white. This would often signify an impending death. So this reminded me of the sighting of the woman in black that was reported in Hillcrest before the explosion. The next story is from a Halloween event. So Frank Slide manager Monica and her husband David were some of the volunteers set up in the mine who will jump out and scare people. They were at a station near the end of the tour and were lying on the ground waiting for another group to come by. Both of them say that they felt a presence linger kind of close by to them. After the amorphous cloud, as they described it, seemed to investigate them, it moved on. After a couple of minutes, David said, what was that? And they were shocked to learn that they had both experienced the exact same thing. There was another little tidbit included about a ghost hunting TV show that came out years ago and said that they connected with four to five entities. One was a man who continued to talk about Rose, and they hypothesized that it might have been his wife. The next identified himself as Fred, so I thought that was really interesting. So as you've heard, it seems as though there is much evidence to support that Fred remains in the mine today. 
So you all know by now that I really appreciate places that respect the history and the spirits that may remain in a location. Both Shannon and Kaylee talk about how they always tell their groups the mine is completely safe, there's nothing to be afraid of, and that they are 100% safe. Shannon says that she will also say this to herself in a way to communicate this to the men that may remain. Since they suffered deaths that were so tragic and scary, she feels like this is a way for her to reassure them as well. Kaylee also says that she believed that if the spirits didn't want them down there or didn't like what they were doing, they would not be doing tours. Shannon said that the spirits most often will only interact with the interpreters and employee of the mine. They believe that this is because those are the ones they're familiar with. And we've seen this in other locations as well, where activity doesn't really take place a lot except to the staff or in the presence of staff. So it's very clear that at the Bellevue Mine, the staff have done a really good job of connecting to and making the spirits feel comfortable and safe. Kaylee said that on a tour with a ghost hunting group, the spirits would only respond if she asked the questions. One last thing I thought I would let you all know is when the most active times are. So Kaylee said that she finds that it's first thing in the morning, the last tour of the day, when she has a very small group, and also when there is a rainstorm. So we know about this. We've talked about water being linked to paranormal activity. And Kaylee said she definitely notices an increase in activity then. So now you know about this amazing location. It's a must-stop for any haunted road trip. Maybe you'll be lucky enough to be under the care of Kaylee, Shannon, or Cole. And as always, be sure to let them know where you heard about them. Now this year, sadly, due to COVID-19, they were unable to do their Halloween event. So fingers crossed that next year it will be possible because it sounds amazing. I want to leave you with one last little thing from Shannon. If anyone is planning a visit... Remember that even on the hottest summer day, it is zero degrees Celsius in the mine. (laughs) (laughs) That is the number one thing we always try to stress to people because, you know, middle of August, you want to be in shorts and a tank top and flip-flops, but the tour is about an hour long and it is very, very cold, so... You want to be able to enjoy yourself down there and not have to leave early because you're getting super chilly. If you do want to donate to the Bellevue Mine, there is a link on their website and I will also link it in the blog. So many of these amazing places are really struggling during this pandemic. So if you have the means to do so, let's donate and keep these places running. Next, I want to share with you my talk with the author Joanne Christensen. Maybe you're like me and grew up reading her books. This was a total fangirl moment for me, and as you'll hear, she is so lovely and so interesting. She has written books such as Ghost Stories of Saskatchewan, Ghost Stories of British Columbia, Ghost Stories of Illinois, More Ghost Stories of Saskatchewan, Ghost Stories of Texas, Ghost Stories of Christmas, Ghost Werewolves, Witches, and Vampires, Haunted Hotels, Campfire Ghost Stories, Haunted Christmas, Haunted Halloween, Victorian Ghost Stories, and Ghost Stories of Saskatchewan 3, which I will be giving away three signed copies of today. Reminder, draw is at 9pm, so get your entries in. I have to say quickly that this was such a funny small world connection. My college friend and designer of my logo, Tanis, 
told me about a new coworker of hers who was telling her about her mom, who is an author of ghost story books. Tannis's partner, Mitch, another talented illustrator, told her that she should put us together. And the rest is, as they say, history. So I have to give a shout out and a thank you to Tannis and Mitch. I will have links to their Instagram pages. They are a talented duo, so make sure to check them out. Now, without further ado, let's get into this talk with Joanne. So first, I wanted to know how it all started. And like many of us interested in the paranormal, it starts with one story. You know, I've always, always liked ghost stories. And I, um, and back in the, in the early 90s, I, I had been working in radio for quite a number of years. That's sort of my other career that I've always been sort of in and out of is radio. And so I had left because I just wanted to, to start doing some freelance writing. Um, my younger brother was getting married and my youngest brother came along with me for, for the trip and his girlfriend, his new girlfriend was with us. And it was really the, the first time I had spent any amount of time with her to get to know her. We were staying in a holiday trailer together and she started, we started talking about ghost stories and she told me about this thing that had happened to her in Regina when she was a child and it was such a good story and one of the gigs that I had is I was doing research for uh, the author of Ghost Stories of Alberta. Mm-hmm. And so I told her about this story and then I told her about some other Saskatchewan ghost stories that I knew of and she goes, well you should really write a Saskatchewan book. And she hooked me up with her publisher. And within a, a year, Ghost Stories of Saskatchewan came out. And that was my first book. And it's crazy to think about it. But that's now it's 25 years since that book came out. So now I've written three books of Saskatchewan ghost stories. I've also done ghost stories of British Columbia. I've done Texas, Illinois, um, some different collections like Victorian ghost stories and haunted hotels and things like that. So there, you know, there were always different ways to, to kind of revisit the same subject matter. But, but that one little story that Leslie told me in that holiday trailer is what got me started. It's what really set things in motion. Yeah. And can you tell us maybe what that story is? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's in the, it's in the first ghost stories of Saskatchewan book. Mm-hmm. And it's, she was like 10 because she said that like what she and her friends would like to do is they go to the playground and they would get on the swings and they would just like swing as high as they could and swear as much as they could because they were away from their parents. <laughs> so I think that, that was, you know, like the, the other uh, real big draw there. Mm-hmm. Um, but she said there was one evening that she and her friends were in the playground and she was on the swings, but the swing beside her was empty. Nobody was using it. And so she started swinging and the swing beside her started swinging too. And she said, it wasn't like it was just moving in the breeze. And Mm -hmm. she said there was no wind that night. And, and what really struck her is that the, the chains on the swing were absolutely taut as if there was weight on the seat. And then when she stopped, the other swing stopped, and it just blew her mind. It, that story just really captured my imagination. And For sure. um, and it's interesting, like so much of what I've written about has been personal accounts like that too, mm-hmm. you know, where it's just one person sees something or, you know, or is, a, is in a group where they witness something and it just can't be explained. Next, I asked her about her own paranormal experiences and this is what she had to say. 
you know, I've had, I have lots of things that are interesting and I kind of, I keep a a specific journal for stuff like this. It's Mm -hmm. it's kind of an evidence journal, if you will, Mm -hmm. because it's, it's very hard for me to reconcile my fascination with this stuff with sort of my self image as, as a really practical person. And so I always doubt myself when I think I've experienced something. Like I, I go for walks every day right now, like, especially since I've, you know, since COVID and everything went on lockdown, mm-hmm. I, all of a sudden I was working from home, not commuting anymore. And so I thought, okay, well, that hour and a half a day that I have now, I'm just going to spend it walking instead because I can't be in my house all the time. Mm-hmm. So all these walks that I'm doing around the neighborhood, I might have seen an apparition. Like I live in a very leafy tree neighborhood. Um, but this one intersection is very open. And so I'm coming up. And so on the this the cross street to my right, I can see this guy walking up to the corner and about to cross the street. And so we're going to meet at some point. Mm-hmm. And I'm very aware of my surroundings when I'm walking. And I'm really careful. Mm-hmm. So I keep an eye on people. And I, you know, I know if someone's behind me, if someone, if I'm about to cross their path, whatever. And so I'm watching this guy. And I couldn't see his face because he was just dressed entirely in black and had a black hood over his head. And not just like he was wearing a hoodie, but like a a really deep sort of hood. There were like two trees on the street that I was on that just blocked my view for a split second as he was about to cross the street. I passed the trees and then there's nobody there. Hmm. And I really, like it really kind of shocked me because I'm thinking like, where did he go? And I spent some time looking around to see there was absolutely no place this person could could have gone. But literally, we're talking about a second, maybe two. He just vanished. When my kids were really young, we lived in, you know, pretty established neighborhood in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And my oldest son was, we moved in there when he was about three years old, like just coming up on three Mm -hmm. and then, and lived there until he was 10. And from the time he was three until I'm going to say about six, that kid was so sensitive and he would see things and he had experiences that I remember so vividly because it was so real. And then Mm -hmm. it just stopped for him. Right. Um, But, you know, at the time, like, I can remember being in, like, in the bathroom with him just brushing his teeth. And he just, like, turned really suddenly and he looked towards the bathtub. And he goes, who's that little girl? Hmm. And then, and I'm like, what girl? And he goes, oh, she's up at the ceiling now. And then he just turns back and keeps brushing his teeth. And there was another time that, and he didn't tell me about this until later because he was so terrified by it. But he went down into our basement And he saw three apparitions Mm -hmm. and he said they were just, they looked like they were made out of white wax was what he told me later, like, you know, a few weeks after when he told me what had happened, Mm -hmm. but he was so scared of that basement after that, but they were just like these, these three big white shapes that he saw in the basement. So I hope all of you perked up when Joanne mentioned a journal to write down any odd experiences. What a cool idea. Though I don't think I have enough to journal, but what a cool idea. I love it. 
I love the story about her on a walk, noticing the man walking, and suddenly he's gone. The time it would take to walk past two trees is, like she said, mere seconds. I think in this world, so many of us are fixated on things, technology, or just stresses in our lives. And I wonder how many things we're missing in our everyday life because we're just flat out not paying attention. Great personal stories, and I love her rational approach to things. Next, I wanted to get into some of the standout stories and places that she has written about. And she does not disappoint. So let's take a listen. Hopkins Dining Parlor in Moose Jaw. That place, I love that restaurant because it's been through all of these different sort of incarnations, you know, where first Mm -hmm. it was a private home and then it was like a, a nurse's residence and now it's a restaurant. And so it's had all of this varied history behind it, which is very appealing to me. It's haunted as hell, which <laughs> is super appealing. Um, there was uh, this lovely, lovely lady who I interviewed, and she passed away a couple of years ago, but she was the hostess at Hopkins for years and years. And she told me a story about being in the washroom there, and the washroom was a very haunted area, lots of activity there. Mm-hmm. And she said she was washing her hands. She could feel something behind her. She looked up in the mirror, and there was a woman standing right behind her, Ooh. and then vanished. And I mean, I just got a chill now yeah, just retelling that story <laughs> every time, because the idea of seeing something in a mirror that mm-hmm. shouldn't be there freaks me out. It always has. Yeah. Even if that building had no other stories associated with it, mm-hmm. that story would make it one of my favorites. There's a, a hospital in Prince Albert, too, that had uh, a Victoria Hospital, I think it was called. I heard a story from a nurse there about this one security card coming and grabbing her and saying, you've got to see this. And she went to look and there was in the monitors, they could see somebody standing at the front desk waiting to be helped. They could see the front desk from where they were and there was nobody standing there. So Crazy. that really creeped me out. Mm-hmm. Um, but but one of my absolute favorite ghost story locations of all time has to be Fort Sam in Saskatchewan. Oh, Fort Sam to me is it's like the it's like the Canadian prairies equivalent of a haunted castle. Just the feeling I always had about it because planning for Fort Sam started in. I think it was 1911, and by 1918, 1919, about the time that that um, all the troops were coming home from the First World War, it was up and running as a tuberculosis sanitarium. Right. And it had, you know, such a dramatic history just because of all the tragedy. Uh, you know, there were there were 40 plus people who would die on site every year at mm-hmm. that place. So. You know, and, and people who were there were sometimes they were children who were removed from their families for months or even years at a time so they could be treated for tuberculosis. And, you know, so there was so much sadness and anguish and just the depth of emotion, I think, really made an imprint on on the place. But the cool thing was that eventually, like in the 70s, it was no longer used as a, a treatment facility. And the, it was sold to the, the province of Saskatchewan for a dollar. It became a conference center and they started having, I think that was, it was like the scouts or something had camps oh, okay. there during the summer mm-hmm. and they had, there were 
band camps, like, you know, all it was used as, as a facility for any sort of learning retreat. Mm-hmm. And so lots of groups of people went there and lots of opportunities for people to experience what still remained there from right. the years when it was, it was a hospital. Uh, and one of the first stories that I heard about Fort Sam was another one of these creepy, creepy things with a, you know, featuring a full apparition mm-hmm. because this, this uh, fellow I was talking to had been there at a band camp. And so he was, they were out rehearsing on the lawn. He had forgotten something. He had to run back into the lodge that he was staying in to grab it. And so the lodge was deserted. Everybody was outside and he went into his room and he could hear this woman singing and and it was the men's lodge they had it divided into to female and male quarters and Mm -hmm. and so he went out into the hallway and he could see sort of kitty corner across uh the hall from from his uh dorm room door was the bathroom door and he could see this woman standing at a sink running water washing her hands and she was just looking at herself in the mirror and sort of humming and singing and so he spoke to her because he thought, well, you're lost. You're in the men's lodge. Mm-hmm. Right? And so he's like, excuse me, ma'am, you're, you're in the men's lodge. This is, this is the wrong one. And she didn't react. She didn't act like she heard him at all. And so he walked across the hall. And as he was walking towards her, she stepped back from the mirror out of view. Mm-hmm. And when he got to the doorway, the bathroom was absolutely empty. And so he walked in and he's like, where could she have gone? Because Mm -hmm. he could see every, every inch of space in that washroom. And then he looks over at the bank of sinks. Like there were four or five sinks in a row Mm -hmm. and they were all dry and the water had been running. She had been washing her hands. Mm -hmm. Like what he could hear was her singing and the water running. There is one very famous story about a group of writers who went there for a weekend workshop and brought a Ouija board with them and they left in the middle of the night. And so nobody knows exactly what they experienced because they refused to ever talk about it. Mm. But what is a matter of record in fact is that they packed up and left in the middle of the night. So they experienced something pretty intense. There was one ghost there who is known as as nurse jane or jane the folding ghost and she's always seen folding linens and she would be there you'd see her and be like who is that what's she doing and turn and she's gone um there's a shadow of a wheelchair that would be seen often but just the shadow mm-hmm. and there are no wheelchairs left on the site of course at that time yeah so fort sand just just had so many so many ghost stories attached to it um and the other place, again, in Saskatchewan was uh, Weyburn Mental Hospital. Mm-hmm. And that's another one that, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. It was finally completely demolished. But but that place had, it had a pretty dark history because, I mean, the history of psychiatric medicine itself is fairly dark. Very dark, yeah. Yeah, and, and all of those things happened at Weyburn. Um, you know, like they certainly did the electroshock therapy and the insulin shock therapy and uh, lobotomies and the uh, the term psychedelic was actually coined at the Weyburn uh, Mental Hospital. Dr. Humphrey Osmond, he was he was the 
the medical professional who coined that term and he was doing a lot of LSD experimentation, you know, so a lot of hallucinogenic drugs were used and, and, and there would have been such desperation attached to that place too, because they, they treated patients with a broad spectrum of challenges and there, there were really no lines of distinction. So there are some very dark ghost stories associated with, with Weyburn. And when they shut the place down, it, it was sort of like piece by piece, you know, they, they would just close off one room and then one wing and then, you know, like bit by bit, but there were other parts of it still being used. Mm -hmm. And so they would have these empty pieces of the building that would still require some maintenance or some security. And so staff members would be walking through them. And this one fellow said, like, you'd be walking down a hallway in a deserted wing. And he goes, you would walk and you could hear the echo of your own footsteps. And then you would stop and your footsteps would continue. Like you could hear your footsteps continuing down the hall. Oh, man. So it was like something was using your activity to mask its own movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I spoke to another paranormal research group who went there and said they would never go back. They, they saw an apparition of... Um, And this is real demonic sounding stuff. They saw an apparition of a cow's head with red eyes and it was trying to, to, um, it came up behind one of the researchers and was trying to stick its tongue inside her head. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So that's terrifying stuff. Yeah. That gives me the chills. (laughs) Oh, it's such dark imagery. And it's like, is that a a possession attempt? Mm -hmm. You know, it's. It's, yeah, it's, it's something not friendly, Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever it was. So those stories are so incredible. And if you haven't checked out her books, they are very easily found and you can read even more. I asked her what she's working on right now and what's coming up in the future. And this is what she said. Well, what I'm working on right now is actually nothing to do with, with ghost stories of the paranormal. I'm mm-hmm. writing a history book for, as I mentioned, I've also worked in radio for most of my career. And so I'm doing a history book for a, uh, a legacy radio station okay. here in Alberta. And so I'm, I'm really into that and I'm excited about that, but I am also itching to get back to <laughs> the kind of material that I usually write about. And, you know, I have a huge interest in tarot as well. And, I don't have a firm plan just yet, but I think my next book might be something that involves tarot and it might be a history of, of, you know, sort of the evolution of psychics, mediums, energy workers, um, predictive arts in the Canadian prairies. So I don't know about you guys, but I really hope she writes that book. It sounds really interesting. This was not the end of our interview. We talked so much more and chatted about our processes and different theories and things. And this all left me feeling so happy and recharged. I hope you all enjoyed listening to Joanne. And don't forget that you have a chance to win a signed copy of Ghost Stories of Saskatchewan 3. She gave me a copy as well. And it's just so good. Thank you so much, Joanne. I hope we can work together again. Thank you so much again to Shannon, Cole, and Kaylee at the Bellevue Mine. You guys are awesome, and I hope to visit next summer. 
I hope all of you have enjoyed the Halloween countdown episodes this month. I'll be taking a little break before finishing off season two in December. There are still some great things to come. So don't forget to check out the blog at realscarypodcast.ca and my Instagram and Facebook at realscarypodcast. As always, you can email me at realscarypodcast at gmail.com. Have a safe and happy Halloween. And until next time, this is your friendly neighborhood host, Elise.